As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. No criminal charges will be filed against Wauwatosa police officer Joseph Mensa. No Tonight, a peaceful protest in Wauwatosa marred by looting. This time, the governor activated the guard as a precaution. Daytime protests turned to late night damage and looting once again, this time in Wauwatosa, after the DA announces no charges will be filed against police officer Joseph Mensa for the shooting death of 17-year-old Elvin Cole. It was the officer's third fatal shooting in five years. How this night was different from the recent unrest in Kenosha and where we go from here. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here again with my colleague, Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Brian. Today is Thursday, October 8th. And once again, we are with Fox 6's Amy DuPont after a late night of reporting. Hi, Amy. Welcome back to Open Record. <laughs> Good morning. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Let's start with how we got here. Wabatosa police officer Joseph Mensa. he's made national headlines as we said a little earlier in this episode, um, killed three people on the job in the last five years. What were the circumstances of, of each of those shootings and, and the buildup to where we are today? Sure. The first shooting took place back in 2015. Um, officer Mensa and another officer were called to an apartment where Antonio Gonzalez, they met him, and he was armed with a sword. Um, the officer ordered him to drop the sword. He did not. They fired their weapons, killing Mr. Gonzalez. About a year later, in 2016, Officer Mensa approached a car in a park late at night. Jay Anderson was inside. Uh, the officer said that Jay reached for a gun or he thought he was going to shoot him with his gun. Officer Mensa fired and killed Jay Anderson as well. And then the final shooting took place in February of this year. Um, a group of officers were called to Mayfair Mall for trouble with party. They were told one of the people involved may have a gun. When they arrived, they saw a group of young men running from the mall. Um, according to Officer Mensa, you know, 17-year-old Alvin Cole had a weapon and had that gun out, and he shot and killed the 17-year-old outside the mall. So, Amy, the most recent of those three shootings was the Cole shooting in February, um, and it wasn't really until the nation started focusing so much on police protest after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis that it seems like things really erupted when it comes to the Cole case and, and the identification of Mensa as the officer who was involved because of that track record. In typical uh, cases, uh, police shooting cases, the DA has made decisions a lot more quickly than this. That was four months later. There had still been no decision made. And now here we are in October. 
What took so long for the Milwaukee County DA in this case to make a determination of whether or not the coal shooting uh, should have led to criminal charges against the officer? Well, Wauwatosa does not have police body cams. They have squad cams, but they don't have body-worn cameras for their officers. So the DA Chisholm had said, you know, he, it was a lot of interviews. It was looking over squad cam videos from multiple cars. It was speaking with multiple witnesses, including the person that, you know, set this all off and the security guard from the mall um, calling police. So he just said he wanted to take his time because, of course, when there's no actual video of what exactly happened, he wanted to take his time to really go over all of the evidence with a fine-tooth comb uh, and make sure that he knew everything that he could know without that video before making any type of charging decision. So yeah, it took eight months. They met with a family a couple months ago, the DA did, and uh, we were expecting a decision then. We're waiting for the family to come out of the courthouse that day, and all they could say was that... uh, They weren't ready for a decision. And at that time, Kimberly Motley, who is representing all three families, uh, she claimed that the DA didn't have all the evidence that the city of Wauwatosa had collected. That became like a little debacle as well. They realized they didn't hand over everything and they immediately did. Uh, And then, of course, that slowed everything down just a bit more. So, yeah, eight months. But that decision finally coming out on Wednesday. So... Yesterday, the DA basically makes his case for why there are no charges here. He, he essentially says they can't prove any charges that they would bring um, because of the way Wisconsin statute works. And specifically, he goes into the factors that have to be present for police officers in Wisconsin to use deadly force. So that's a weapon. That's a means of delivering lethal force and displayed intent by the person who has that weapon. And he's saying this case presented all three. I'm curious about the community's reaction to this because the DA seemed ready to make his case. And from what we were seeing back here, it it didn't look like that was going over particularly well with many members of the community. Absolutely not. Um, They have wanted not only the officer to be fired, they they want him criminally charged. They want him jailed. They see him as a rogue cop. One of their main arguments is that Officer Menson never should have been at Mayfair Mall in February because he should have been terminated after the second shooting he was involved in or the first. Um, that is their claim that he is a rogue cop that shouldn't be on the job. So that's one of their points. The second point is that they claim that Alvin Cole never pointed a weapon at the officers. Um, As D.A. Chisholm said in his report, Officer Mensa feared for his life, and there was sufficient evidence to to back up that claim. Well, and what was interesting is he he did say, and I was was listening to his words very carefully, um, he said that the video, they tried to have the squad car video enhanced as much as possible, but it was at a distance. Without body cameras, they could not see up close whether or not uh, he or he never explicitly says, but he certainly doesn't say overtly that they could see Cole pointing a weapon at men. So what he says is the the officer's descriptions, because it was witness statements, other officers who said that the gun had been pointed. Who, uh, he said that the video was consistent with what the officers had said, meaning there was nothing there to refute them. It doesn't mean they saw the gun pointed at Officer Mensa, but they couldn't see any evidence that refuted what the officers had said. 
Yeah, he said from the witness statements, it backed up what Officer Mensa said, uh, and therefore, under state law, and if, if an officer fears for his or her life, the shooting is considered justified. Yeah, he, he did not weigh in on whether Officer Mensa should keep his job or not. He said that is not his job. His job is to determine whether the state has enough evidence to get a conviction, and he did not have that in this case. Well, and speaking of that point, someone else did weigh in. Independent investigator former U.S. Attorney Stephen Biskupic, he was actually called into this because the family of Jay Anderson, who was killed in 2016, filed a formal complaint this year in June, a few weeks after all of the national unrest broke out over the death of George Floyd. And that formal complaint ultimately led to uh, the introduction of Biskupic as this independent investigator. And he released his report yesterday as well, a few hours before the DA made his decision not to charge. And in his report, he recommends that Walwatosa's uh, police and fire commission fire Officer Mensa. The reason he gave was in particular that the risk of a fourth shooting is extraordinary and is just too much for the community to bear. He said that risk is too great. The only violation he found was that Officer Mensa had granted public interviews with a radio station and with a, a podcaster without the department's approval. He said that some of those statements were inconsistent or misleading and that, that granting that interview violated department policy. Interestingly, he found no other violations of department policy in, in his actions involving uh, Jay Anderson, but he just said simply that three shootings in five years, the risk of a fourth is too great, so he recommended uh, th that he'd be fired. D did you hear at all from the family or any community reaction to what the independent administrative investigation found? Of course, they agree with that report because they want Officer Mensa fired. In fact, they want him criminally charged. They want him, you know, in a jail cell for the rest of his life. So they pointed out made mention of that report several times in their press conference after they met with the DA. Uh, interesting, Brian, in August, I sat down with Mayor McBride of Wauwatosa, and he talked about the same thing. He called Officer Mensa an anomaly, right? Because Wauwatosa is a pretty small city. To, to have three different fatal shootings by one officer is incredibly rare. He, too, talked about the risk to the officer and the risk to the community, the risk to the department if he continues to be on the job because there are people there. I, I heard it myself uh, at a public meeting at Hart Park. There was a gentleman that stood up and said, I'm going to be driving around Wauwatosa with my taillight out hoping to run into Officer Mensa. So the risk to the officer, the risk to his coworkers, the risk to the city, both, you know, uh, personnel-wise, safety-wise, and financial-wise, is high. Uh, and that Mayor McBride said, whether you like it or not, that is a, a real concern for the city of Wauwatosa. Now, legally, can they do that? Can you fire someone because of the likelihood that something's going to happen? Uh, you know, that is going to probably end up with some very highly paid attorneys. Uh, but that has been a concern for the city. And again, that a special investigator brought that up as well. Well, and in these uh, police involved shootings that we've covered, it, typically what happens is it's a, a white officer who ends up shooting a black person. There's a different layer in this case in which the officer, Officer Mensa, is black. And so when you have the Black Lives Matter marches and, and the chants going on, of course, they're talking about the victims in this case, the people who have been shot 
um, who are also people of color. But it is a, a different layer in this case to have the officer himself be black. Absolutely. But keep in mind, too, when this case started getting national attention, we had not seen a picture of Officer Mensa. Uh, many of us made many requests for it, but they kind of held it under wraps because it was an active investigation. How we finally got his picture is Officer Mensa's brother started a GoFundMe page and he put a picture out there. And, and then that's how it got out there. But you're right. So when you're watching these protests or you attend any of these events, Again, they use the word rogue. Officer Mensa is a rogue cop. He's a killer cop. That's how they describe him. And they say that he is not worthy of the community's support to be an officer. I, I think you make an interesting point, though, Amy, because I would imagine if, if you are one of Officer Mensa's attorneys, if you maybe represent the police union or, or someone else, the idea that an officer could be fired when in, in any individual situation, there's been no finding that he committed any sort of inappropriate use of deadly force in those all three cases now it's been found that the use of deadly force was appropriate or at least was not to a level that met the burden of filing criminal charges um and he's certainly not been been fired the independent investigators only finding of a violation was granting an interview without permission and i can't imagine in a typical case that would be a term uh, or a fireable offense um so it's so that you as you said it's the idea that this is an anomaly. This is extremely unusual, especially in a smaller department. This isn't Milwaukee. This isn't New York City. This is Wauwatosa. To have one officer involved in three fatal shootings definitely stands out. But is that something you can fire someone for from a legal standpoint will be an interesting question. We know how the community, especially those who have been out protesting, we know how they feel. And let's talk about that, too, because... We, I think everyone expected, knowing where this was likely going in terms of the DA's decision, the community was prepared. Uh, the, the city of Wauwatosa, you had Governor Evers calling in the National Guard, um, businesses that were boarded up before a decision was even made. Let's talk about how the community reacted last night, what you saw you were out in the field, and what maybe some of uh, your colleagues who were in other parts of the city saw. How these things typically go is they start with a group of people who are loud and, you know, interfere with traffic, but they're peaceful. Um, that's how it usually goes. And then the group grows, and as the sun goes down, you get stragglers who I don't believe really understand the message. They're stragglers, and they're just agitators. They're causing problems. So we saw that again last night. However, I will say much earlier in the day, uh, we heard from one of our photographers who first caught up with that group just a few hours after the DA announced his decision. And he sent out an email to all of us warning us that the group was throwing things at reporters. Um, so that kind of stuff happened. Uh, that happened last night, later in the night as well. Uh, a group, their security detail, that's new to reporting, right? Now we have security details in this situation because you just don't know. People are very, very emotional. And that's when things can get out of control. And they got separated from their security detail. So again, it started out fine with chanting, some disruption. They went on the interstate. But then the sun went down and suddenly we're hearing reports of broken windows and um, throwing rocks. And then police started firing tear gas. They deemed the protest outside of City Hall an unlawful gathering. 
Um, and then that they there's there is like a kind of a formula. They say certain things. They give them so much time. And when the group didn't disperse, they did eventually fire tear gas. And Wauwatosa, um, whoever was running their social media, everything they did from firing gas, the location they uh, at the end were using tire deflation devices. They were very public about it. They kept updating their social media to tell people in their community and around the world what they were doing, where they were doing it, and when they were doing it. Amy, you mentioned protesters' reaction to journalists. This is something you have experience with over the last several months because the coverage of the Mensa situation has been a slow burn. So at at the risk of asking you to relive some painful memories. I mean, you've had firsthand experience where protesters have gotten physical with you. So what is that like as you're keeping that in mind going into something like last night? Yeah, it's scary. Um, Back in August, I was covering a demonstration in Wauwatosa. Um, Police had taken a stand the group was getting closer to the mayor's house. And on the same block as the mayor, there's a member of their police and fire commission. Um, so that had been a consistent location of these these events. Um, we were there. We were with all the other media crews. And like I said, it, it's not the entire group. This isn't like 200 people are angry with you. It's a half a dozen To be honest, I know it was more than six, less than 12. Things happen very quickly and you're in survival mode. So you you miss some details. But um, the group approached us. They saw my photojournalist at the time because his camera's logoed. Um, Surrounded him. We're grabbing at the camera. He was trying to talk to them like, hey, hey. And they were yelling at us about how... They didn't like our narrative. They would tell their own. They were upset that we hadn't covered a backpack event. And remember, our newsroom's pretty large. Like, So we have no idea what they're talking about. What What are you talking about? What backpack event? When Eric took the camera off his shoulder, I was behind him filming on my phone. I was doing a Facebook Live at the time. And I wasn't even talking. I was – at this point, you're like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? You know – we're a family, um, especially during quarantine. We've been spending a lot of time with one person. So this is someone I care about. I would care about if it was anyone. But, it, you know, when you work with someone every day, you're, you're, you're watching this happen. And when he set the camera down, the, a member of the group saw me with my phone up. And she approached me and she knocked, like grabbed, pushed out with her hand and her hand knocked my phone and um, knocked me off the Internet. And I swatted her hand away because she had her hand on my phone and said, don't touch my phone. And then it went downhill pretty fast. Um, The group surrounded us. You know, they want you to leave, but they don't let you leave. And we're like, "Okay, we'll go. We'll go. Uh, We started to make our way. And, of course, our car is parked a couple blocks away because we do that for safety reasons, too. Um, We got separated. The group was running into me, you know, where they run up to you and they bump you. Um, I got knocked out of my shoes. I looked up and one of the people, one of the demonstrators had a a long gun and he was, Eric was still on his feet. He was on top of, you know what I mean? Like he's like screaming in his face, telling him he's going to kill him. Um, And that's when Eric realized that I wasn't right behind him. So as you can imagine, when you're separated and your friend has someone with a gun threatening to you know, kill them. I'm surrounded by people knocked out of my shoes, 
Thankfully, I never fell down. I stayed on my feet. I was able to get my shoes back on. Um, (laughs) I just started walking after my knee surgery about two days before that. So um, I wasn't moving very fast either. Um, We got to the car. There was an older guy who was trying to help me. He was like, come on, come on, come on. And he got to the car before me, opened the door, and was trying to get me in the passenger seat of the car. Eric's on the other side, and I look over, and they've surrounded him again. He's just trying to get his gear into the car at that time. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, do I get out, right? Do I get out and try to help him? And I remember this older man was like, stay in the car, stay in the car. Eric gets in the car. They surrounded the car. They're pounding on the windows, the hood. They shine lights into the car so you can't see anything. It's the worst. And they're screaming, go, go, go. And Eric's like, I can't leave until you get away from the car. I mean, we couldn't move the car an inch at this point because they were surrounding the car. You can't see anything. Eric finally tries to like back up into reverse and we're going super slow. But you, I mean, you can't see anything. And um, he hit the curb. I, for a second, I thought we hit someone. Like I was like, oh my gosh, we hit someone. Thank goodness we didn't. We were able to pull turn around and get out of there and that's when I I'm like what is stinging and here I was bleeding um they had scratched me my arm so I have a couple scars that are never going to go away I had to go get a tetanus shot um we made it out with all of our equipment Um, but then the girl that I initially had the confrontation with she went right to social media and told a very different story about what happened Um, and I started getting emails and social media, um, that they were trying to find me, threatening to hurt me while Wabatosa police got involved. Um, we talked about steps that I could take, um, you know, notifying my local law enforcement where I live about what happened, um, getting an escort to and from work for a little bit, taking a different route to and from work. Um, so that lasted about a week. Um, But this group is very good with tracking down your personal information. So it was really hard. Amy, I I hear so much in this that is uh, the overarching message is this was obviously a terrifying experience for you. Um, You talked about the physical scars. It sounds like the, the maybe the emotional traumatic scars may be deeper. This was you're just trying to do your job. And our jobs have become so much more volatile in the current environment. 2020 has raised so many things that have raised everyone's emotions. And I know that while this was a traumatic experience, it's not the only time as a journalist that you felt unfairly targeted by someone. In fact, you had a law enforcement experience along the way in trying to cover protests that uh, th- that you said w- was intimidating as well. You, you, can, you want to talk about that at all? Sure. It was back... Um... Well, gosh, it must have been back in in early June when everything was happening in Milwaukee and the station assigned me to kind of work an overnight shift, 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. to just kind of be around. And there was a a, a big disturbance outside D5 in Milwaukee Um, and there was a fire, there was gunshots, they rolled in, you know, their response teams and they were trying to break up the group and we were still shooting. And by that point, when they're firing tear gas, um, people do move quickly. That is not a fun experience. I highly recommend you stay out of tear gas if you can. Um, but it came down, we were kind of following the, the law enforcement as they moved down MLK. And, you know, this has been going on for a while. There were less than a dozen people there and some officers in one of the armored vehicles spotted just 
me and the photographer that I was working with and they spotted us and over the loudspeaker said, if you don't leave, you'll be arrested. And there was a curfew. Media is exempt from the curfew. We are working. And we were like, what? You know, like you can't, there's five other people standing right next to us, but only the two of us. Um, And then they did it one more time. And at that point, we just packed up and left. And and here's the deal. There was no way I was going to be charged. I felt legally I was on solid ground. I'm exempt from the curfew. I'm not causing a problem. I'm not even interacting with anyone. I'm standing there shooting video. But at this time, remember, the the pandemic was, it wasn't so normalized. Um, And so, like, they were taking men and women to different facilities. At that point, I felt like it wasn't worth it to make a stand because I was going to get, you know, handcuffed put in a car with people I didn't know, separated from my photographer, booked and then released with a ticket, which I'm sure the station would have fought for me. Um, but yeah, so things like that, they're, it's just silly. You know, people make a point when they don't need to, um, especially with us. We are doing our best out there. And, and, you know, going back to what happened in Tosa, I think that was the hardest part for me because I had covered the Officer Mensa case, oh my gosh, Days, days of my time at Fox 6. And I spoke with everyone and I was working so hard to hear from all sides and make sure that when I wrote my story that every word matters and, and how you write things and what you say and the information you share with your viewers is so important every day, but even more so in cases like this. So to be attacked like that, it's hard because you know, I, f- I felt like I was doing everything I, I could to get everyone's message out there in a fair way. For journalists, the aftermath of that is difficult. And I'm sure you've experienced this, Amy, because there's a, a part of us that is going, okay, like this is part of the job, try to get through it. There's a part of you where you need to shrink what you're feeling down in the moment so you can do your job at the time. But if you do that too much, that you then run the risk of it resurfacing later. And so I think there's more awareness now for journalists that we have to be able to deal with and process the, um, the events and the situations that you just described. And I think it's so good for people to hear about this and hear about the million little choices that we all have to make in the field. But the the aftermath and and struggling with that can be really difficult as as we're trying to do our jobs, but also deal with the the very real scenarios that we're confronted with. Yeah. um, And in situations like this, you, you can't get away from it, right? Like since March, the things we're dealing with at work, the pandemic, they affect your personal life too. So you're always working. And, and same thing with the, the what we've seen with, you know, the civil unrest. It's going through our neighborhoods, too. There is no break. And with social media, people are approaching you or trying to connect with you 24 hours a day. And, you know, I love social media and I hate it at the same time because the things that are said to us, um, there's no way anybody would ever say that to your face. Um, but they sure will do it. And it was interesting. I sat down with the fire chief, Chief Rolfing. He's retiring. And he had talked about, as a nation, we're learning so much more about PTSD, about the things that we do to get through our daily lives. 
And, you know, we've known for a long time, right, that people like police, fire, military, they go to war and it really, you know, can mess with their brains. And we as a community of journalists are now realizing that we fall into that category too. We see things and hear things that are not normal, but they're normal in our world. And, you know, a lot of us develop gallows humor, um, and that's part of the coping mechanism. So with what happened to me, was this the scariest thing that's ever happened in my career? Yep, it sure was. But I kept trying to tell myself, like, you're okay, you're okay. Like, why, why are you so scared? You walked away, scratched, yep, knocked around, yep, but you're okay. Um, we did have someone, the station had someone come talk to us because all of us have had events like this. We had a reporter or a photographer that got hit by a piece of concrete down uh, in Kenosha. So, um, you know, all of us have had to deal with us. Yeah, we talked about it. It's not normal. And... Um, it's the little things that just added up for me, you know? So like I said, I've had close call. I was caught in a shooting that week that I worked the overnight shift. Not only did I have the run in with law enforcement, but I got caught in a shooting and it didn't scare me at all. And I remember thinking like, huh, I probably should have been a little bit more scared than I was. I mean, I, I could see the guy firing the gun right in front of me. Now, that, that's something I can relate to because, that I, I've, as everyone knows, I had the situation. Well, I shouldn't say everyone knows, but a lot of people know I had the situation with a guy pointing a gun at me on a story, and, and I didn't behave in a way that was fearful at all. And I had a lot of people in my life criticize me and, and, and scold me and say, you've got to take that more seriously. It's interesting as journalists sometimes what does or doesn't scare us, and then sometimes we look back and go, wow, that really should have um, interestingly enough, and I give you so much credit, Amy, for, for, for rallying and getting back out there. And last night you're out there covering Wauwatosa, knowing that anything could happen once again. I can't imagine how difficult that is to sort of just get up the courage to get back out and, and get right back on the horse and do it again. This isn't the last protest that's going to happen. There will be more. Um, and, and, and to bring it back around to where we are, Last night was obviously a reaction to the decision by the DA not to charge, but it's not the end of the Joseph Mensa story. He is still currently suspend, suspended with pay uh, by, by the Wauwatosa Police Department, so there's a recommendation that he be fired. He hasn't been yet, so that's, I suppose, one of the next steps is to see what the Police and Fire Commission does in Wauwatosa. There's a civil lawsuit that is likely to come from the family of, of Alvin Cole, and, and I'm not sure if, if that's also coming from the family of Jay Anderson uh, or any of the others. You've talked to some of them. Really, what is kind of the next thing that's going to be happening in the Mensa case? So Kimberly Motley, the family that's represent, or excuse me, the attorney that's representing the Cole family, uh, she did say it sounds like within this week she's going to ask for federal prosecutors to look at this case. Um, she made mention of that at the press conference. So even the criminal investigation part of this sounds like it's not over. They're taking it to the next level. That did happen with the Jay Anderson case as well. And again, he was found to be uh, justified use of force in that case as well. Um, but yes, yeah, she made mention that that's coming. You're right. Then you have the Police and Fire Commission in Wauwatosa battling it out with the police department and the union. Um, there are members of police and fire that want Officer Mensa fired. Um, they've started this ad hoc committee 
Um, and there's been back and forth between the union and that with who's on the ad hoc committee and should they have any involvement in police training. I mean, it is ugly all the way around. And then you add in, again, as you mentioned, there's likely to be civil um, civil cases as well. So no, we are not even close to being done with this story. There's many layers to it. And, you know, the court systems move pretty slowly. So it could be months or years before this thing is, is wrapped up and, and over. I know there's been a push for the department to get body cameras since obviously not having them really slowed down the investigation and, and made it difficult. Where does that stand right now? Sure. Uh, They just finished up their testing. They must have brought in a couple different kinds to try them out. So they've made a decision and and they're moving forward. I I don't know exactly when they're coming, but it's coming soon. Um, So they will have those going forward. There's there's a push nationwide that they should be mandatory for all departments because, you know, Kenosha, the shooting of Jacob Blake, same thing. Nobody worn cameras there. Um, So this is a discussion happening in every single community across our nation. But of course, they're expensive. We're talking millions of dollars. And, you know, where do you it's not a, a matter of, hey, we don't need them. It's how do we pay for them? Um, so I think eventually it will become like a standard piece of equipment for police when that happens and how they pay for it, though. It, that's going to take some time to sort out. Amy, thank you so much for joining us this morning and for taking us through some of your personal experiences. We really appreciate you sharing that all with us. Yeah, thank you. It's, you know, it's it's nice to talk about it. I try to keep my personal experiences out of my stories, but every now and then it's it's a good thing, right, for us to hear from other people when we don't share their world. Hopefully, you know, I'm not asking for a lot of compassion, but understanding. And, and you know, when when I see people doing their jobs from a different point of view, I think it makes me a better person as well. Well, we appreciate that point of view. Thank you, Amy. And of course, we're going to continue bringing you different points of views in these twice weekly episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic, presidential election, police community relations, and so much more. So if there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email. You can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. That's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. And as always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. And of course, once again, to Amy DuPont for joining us on Open Record once again. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Polson, and we'll be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday. <laughs>